Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. As France and Hungary face upcoming elections, what future does the EU face? Nationalism or supranationalism? National sovereignty or Brussels centralisation? Joining me to discuss all of these issues and more is Portugal's former Europe Minister and the author, Bruno Massange. Let's start by talking about the recent breakdown in Franco-British relations. On a more broader point, why do you think Britain and France aren't getting on? I think it all goes back to Brexit. It was very clear from the beginning that there was a kind of a challenge to European integration that Britain was issuing. I remember the very first day after the referendum meeting a a top official in Brussels, and he was quite open that the EU could not accept that a British prime minister would in the future describe Brexit as a success. And it's still uh, an open issue whether it's going to be a success or not. Uh, It's certainly not been a a failure or a disaster or a collapse, as many people announced. But I think um, the stakes are very high. Uh, The stakes are very high for France and Germany, they were very high for Britain. I think both sides also have some obvious gains to get from this. I think the reason that France is so interested and enthusiastic about these confrontations is that elections are coming, uh, and it does help. It's not surprising. I don't think it's it's terribly serious. I disagree with uh, this recent uh, FT piece by uh, Gideon Brackman about how this is a, a threat to the West. I think it's... Um, fundamentally uh, about public communications, it's fundamental about the elections, it's fundamentally about uh, appealing to hardcore of your uh, of your public that, that kind of enjoys this. And I think people enjoy it on both sides. It's not true that only Britain is obsessed about this. You see it in France as well. Do you think that this is more about personalities, Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron, rather than actual issues? I think it's, it's about personalities to the extent that both of them are really focused or obsessed about how they're portrayed in the media and how about the spat is portrayed in the media, as opposed to, say, Angela Merkel, who doesn't really care. They are both uh, children of, of this intense media culture. Dominic Cummings said that explicitly about Boris, that you know he's, he's reading the papers obsessively in the morning, and I know for a fact that it's true of Emmanuel Macron as well. So they get captured by it, and it's a feedback loop. They feed the media, the the media feeds them. So it's not surprising that it it gets at times pretty intense. 
So has Macron got this kind of Napoleon Bonaparte syndrome that people accuse him of having in the British press? No, I think uh, it's it, it's not quite about that. It's about being tough uh, with Britain. And it's about projecting this image of toughness. It's about also jockeying for the position of leader of the European Union, so standing up for the EU. Uh, it's well accepted in Brussels by the whole world of Brussels officials, EU officials. And so in, in a way it, it pays because Macron more and more can present himself as a champion of EU interest uh, and his popularity is, is consistently high in those circles. And that's another reason he does that. So it's in a way it's actually not nationalistic, obviously nationalistic. He's trying to present himself as the leader of Europe. That's the difference between Macron and let us say the goal uh, that he, he sometimes takes in some inspiration from. The goal was a specifically even parochial to some extent French political figure. Uh, Macron doesn't want to be that, uh, and to some extent, I think he isn't. Do you think Macron, in in any way, is isolated in Europe? And the Brits would argue that Macron has failed to get support from the European Commission to put pressure onto the UK to give these fishing licenses, for example, or on a range of other issues where France is increasingly more isolated in Europe in their kind of, I don't know, anti-British tirade, as some people might see it on the British side. I'm not quite sure that's right. I mean, the European Commission doesn't like confrontation by definition, but I see them still holding the line. There hasn't been any significant concession. Uh, Sometimes in the UK, there's still some hope for that. But what we're seeing is just the prolongation of Brexit. I always thought this would never end with the agreement, uh, with the final agreement would continue in the years and decades afterwards. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're going to live with this for probably the rest of our lives. There are going to be moments of crisis, recurring crisis, moments of some uh, relaxation, but it won't be over. Some of these issues and others will return necessarily to the table. And to that extent, uh, you don't see any appetite in Brussels to put an end to it. And do see it in, in the UK. I think the UK wants to move on, but that's going to be an attempt by Brussels to make the agreement stick and in some cases reopen it, but not in ways that would be necessarily favourable to to British interests or to current British Prime Minister. Is this really a change from historic relations between Britain and the rest of the EU when Britain was in the European Union? We've always had fights, we've always had rows over various problems. Perhaps this will simply be a continuation of that, if not on a larger or more exaggerated scale. Yeah, someone said uh, at some point during the negotiations that Britain used to be inside the EU with lots of opt-outs and then it would be outside the EU with lots of opt-ins. And I think that's the best description I've seen. I don't, you know, I used to be in those meetings. I don't see a fundamental difference because the, the UK has not been able to decisively move away from the EU sphere and the way it's been captured by these discussions. And interests are very interlinked. And there's an attempt, uh, Oku's and others, to project a different kind of Britain that has, as the spectator said, uh, flown away into another world. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. So what we're going to have is kind of a conflictual relationship that existed before, but also uh, an inability on, on Britain's side to decisively break with the EU. Do you think that some Europeans uh, leaders have been surprised by the fact that Britain, as you say, hasn't collapsed into this isolated island 
And you mentioned the Ocus deal there is an example of where Britain didn't need the EU to negotiate a major defence agreement, and Britain perhaps still has its allies in America and in other places around the world. That's right. So uh, it always seemed to me that, that Britain would do relatively well after Brexit and that uh, leaving the EU would not change the fundamental equation because it always seemed to me that the strengths that Britain has were actually not directly related to uh, its membership in the EU. Uh, I think the UK never took full advantage of its membership in the EU. One example that I always give is the uh, single marketing services was never developed. Either Britain was not able to do it or to lead the process or there was no interest from other member states. But clearly the areas where the EU was providing tangible advantages to member states were actually areas where Germany and France and other countries had the upper hand, so to speak. The advantages that Britain had, the language, the skills, ability to attract highly skilled individuals from all over the world, the universities, the city in London, the media, uh, which obviously, you know, I'm here very happily giving an interview to a British media outlet and I turned down invitations from uh, other countries because the media is not as globally relevant as as British media. So all that was obviously going to be there after Brexit. It was not going to collapse. No one could believe this. But remarkably, actually, lots of people, including in the UK, really thought that Britain's strength was directly connected to the EU membership. And so they anticipated a disaster to the very beginning of the process. And that clearly, I think it's clear by now, hasn't happened. Do you think fundamentally Britain should have ever joined the European project? Yes, because when it joined, it really was something different and less demanding. And then uh, the EU changed in directions that I uh, applaud and support. But that's not what the UK was interested in, starting with the euro and then the, the Lisbon Treaty. There was obviously a political dimension that we're, we're trying to provide and that is new and that wasn't there in the 70s. So I actually don't think it is this tragic story that is some, some, sometimes described. Uh, I see it more as uh, normal historical development. Do you develop in a certain direction and the UK was not part of that project and there should be space to correct decisions once the historical situation is different. That's how I see Brexit. So I always saw it as, as something actually relatively normal. That was my disagreement with many people in in Brussels and many remainers in the UK that described it as a historical tragedy. And it seemed to me things change and you have to adapt to them. You mentioned earlier that Macron has an ambition to be the leader of Europe, unlike de Gaulle, as you rightly say. Do you think that that ambition has any possibility of being realised? And can you link that in with the new German Chancellor who is going to be coming in soon to replace Merkel? Right. Uh, no, I don't. I, I think it will be very difficult. Uh, Germany has advantages that, that France doesn't have, a strong economy and a political system that is uh, much more consensual, less fragmented, able to deliver. Uh, Germany is also much more present in the EU's institutions in, in pivotal places. France has never been as good at doing that. So it's easy to actually to communicate between Berlin and Brussels in a way that's not as easy for Paris. I think Germany under Merkel and probably under her successor it was also much more able to position itself at the center of every European debate. It was not that Germany was all-powerful, it's that it always shows very well how to become the pivotal country. For example, bringing together more radical views on fiscal responsibility and then the views of Southern Europe 
Germany was never as radical as Finland or the Netherlands and could be a bridge. And the same on disputes on the rule of law between uh, the older member states and the new member states in Central and Eastern Europe. Germany, again, positions itself in the center. But this is part of the political culture in Germany, which is then very easy to translate to EU politics. It's not part of Macron's personality and instinct at all. He wants to drive by being polemical, controversial. So I don't think he's going to have a good time in the kind of political system that uses, exists at the EU level. He will be a dominant figure. He will get all the media attention. He has a lot of favorability in in Brussels, but he's not going to be able to lead different member states with many uh, opinions and different views forward. Uh, in that sense, bad news for, for the EU if that becomes the pattern. Uh, you're going to see an increase in conflict and an increase in political distance between member states. There was a piece in The Atlantic called The Merkelization of the World, and it argues that the world is heading more towards the era of Angela Merkel in which crises weren't dealt with, they were managed, and that issues were sort of papered over and, and things happened very slowly. How do you view Angela Merkel's legacy after 16 years Yes, I have a, a favorable view of Merkel's legacy. And I don't agree with this. It's now become dominant view that she was uh, unable to make uh, difficult decisions, that she would always go for compromise. In the EU, by definition, you have to bring all the countries together. She did that very well. Everyone who was in those meetings knows that without her, the crisis would have been much worse. Um, the refugee crisis in particular, she was the one making the decisions, moving the discussion further. Uh, what you could see in many of those meetings is that there were different opinions, there were chaos. In my first book, I describe in detail one of those meetings and you know everyone shouting their views without listening to anyone else. Lots and lots of political differences. And she was the one who quietly moved the issue further and actually got some results in the Eurozone crisis and in the refugee crisis. I suspect in Brexit that I followed less from the inside uh, she was also pivotal in that sense. I think we're going to miss her. That's pretty obvious to me. Let's talk about Poland in a minute. But let's, for now, let's stick on Olaf Scholz. Who is he? What's his temperament like? How can you describe him to British viewers who have likely never heard of him? He's moderate on most issues. Uh, he's not from the left wing of his party. You can detect that difference immediately talking to him. Yeah, he wants to look at the facts, is uh, really evidence-focused. Very little of the uh, strong ideology that you still get on the left wing of the party that is union-dominated and where views on the United States, are, for example, are sometimes very extreme. He's none of that. He's in many respects quite similar to Merkel. I don't think he has the same political talent. But he will have a very divided government to deal with, and that's... Uh, is is a handicap he has compared to Merkel. But he won the election basically because he didn't make any mistakes as opposed to his uh, um, two main opponents, uh, didn't make any gaffe, uh, waited for his time, cautious, deliberative, I think that's the way to describe it, and serious. People looked at him and they recognized the long tradition of what a German chancellor looks like. And they look at his two opponents, they didn't see that. So he's a voice for continuity in that sense. People won't see a big difference from what we think of as a German chancellor. And there haven't been many, by the way, uh, since 1949. 
Let's talk about Poland. This is another challenge the EU faces. Can you describe to people what the problem is? It's this issue of the Polish courts having supremacy over EU courts or EU law. And how significant is this problem for the EU? So the question of which law has supremacy was taken up by the European Court of Justice in some famous cases, but it was never really versed into the EU's treaties. And that's what explains a certain cautious that you see in Brussels, but also in Berlin, that you can't actually point to an article in the Lisbon Treaty and say, well, the Polish Supreme Court is violating this article. I think that's the root of the problem. And so people are trying to deal with this question without having to go back to fundamentals because fundamentals actually in this case don't decide the issue. It's just that most governments so far, uh, certainly all governments in in the sense that none has gone as far as as the Polish government, uh, have subscribed to the idea that practically without raising the issue at a theoretical level, practically you accept it you lost supremacy. And so it's particularly troubling to see a government, but also a court in a member state that not only has challenged that supremacy, but it's challenged across the board, not on a specific issue like the German Constitutional Court has done in the past, but across the board as a matter of principle. The EU has been caught a bit unprepared for this. Uh, Again, the Treaty of Lisbon, as opposed to some proposals that were made at the time, did not include anything on this. There seems to be no appetite to solve the question by actually going back, opening up the treaties and including that uh, specifically there. So it's a question the EU is going to have a lot of trouble dealing with. And I think the expectation is to try to cajole the the Polish government to try to solve the issue in a way that's uh, uh, rather consensual. That's been Merkel's approach uh, as well. Uh, the bigger issue for me here is that In a way, it's a more fundamental challenge to the EU than Brexit, because Poland and Hungary don't want to leave. There's no majority, but even the governments don't want to leave. Even Orban, I was in Budapest very recently, talked to some of his close advisors and officials. They don't want to leave the EU. They want to change the EU from the inside. And that's a, a much more difficult challenge to deal with. You have countries, governments, politicians that disagree fundamentally with the approach to European integration that's been taken over decades, but they don't leave. They make the processes very difficult from within, and they have a certain vision of the EU that is opposed to what the vast majority of people in other capitals believe in. It is a more fundamental challenge than Brexit from that perspective. Is the EU now fundamentally divided between Western countries, if you like, who believe in the European idea of integrationism, and the Eastern and Central European countries who want to assert their own national sovereignty whilst you know, having the same benefits as they've had of membership, the economic benefits and so on. Right. And developing an image of the EU where it's essentially an association of states, but no supranational element involved. And Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Also, uh, and I think this is particularly traumatizing, no vision of the future. This is the end. And what's kept you together is a certain vision of the future that is often vague, but keeps people motivated and committed to the U as a whole and inspires it also gives a certain romantic aspiration to the project. All that is being threatened by countries such as Hungary and Poland. I don't think we can quite divide between East and West because there are countries in Central and Eastern Europe that uh, are very different from Hungary and Poland on this. Uh, so, so far it hasn't really developed into that kind of geographical division yet, but it could. If Hungary and Poland prove successful in this approach, uh, then it could become a, a wider problem. We'll see the Hungarian elections, which I, you know, I don't want to say they're more important than the French elections, but there's clearly the outcome is more uncertain from my point of view, and uh, Orbán's defeat, which is plausible, possible and plausible now that the opposition is fully united. Orban's defeat would be, I hope this doesn't help uh, Orban himself, but it would be received with, uh, with bottles of champagne, would be open in Brussels and many capitals. And in, in that sense, if you can point to the costs of this strategy and this path in one member state, that would make people in other member states more cautious about taking this approach. I don't think you can describe Hungary as, as a success right now, the economy struggle, unemployment, people are still living the country. Horban and his people sometimes try to present this as, as an example of a, of a successful government in Europe. I think it's difficult to do that. And so we'll see what happens in the elections. Do you think that this is about Viktor Orban as a man, or is there fundamental or wider issues here at stake? In other words, if let's say if Orban does lose this election, does this problem that we've just been talking about of sort of Western European countries versus Poland and Hungary and other countries, does that simply go away? It won't go away. We do have uh, a kind of a European malaise. We know we've had economic problems for more than a decade now. They're not solved. Unemployment very high still in many places. We feel that Europe's place in the world is more and more diminished every year. And now there are two reactions to this, either kind of moving forward towards uh, a stronger supranational element, but it can also, and it has had that effect in many countries, it can also awaken a certain nostalgia for the past, where you thought that Europe was more important and the economy was doing better. So this imagery, you know, you go back to the post-war years where countries uh, seemed stronger, more resilient. And so Europeans are now divided between these two images. We know that the present is not working, but the reaction to this can either be a certain image of the future, which we have not been able to to provide with sufficient attraction, or then a return to a past where perhaps uh, member states were more autonomous, more independent, and they felt themselves more in control of their own destinies. 
The question you have to ask is whether there is really a response, uh, because if we project to the future, a Europe that is divided between many different member states, is this really a situation where you can respond and compete with China, with India, with Russia, with the United States? Many people in Hungary, many people in France, many people in all across Europe think that would be possible, but I think they're mistaken in the sense that their image of what their countries were is an image rooted in the past and that world has moved on. Italy will soon be out of the top 20 economies. So when you project an image of Italy alone outside the European Union, perhaps in some people's minds, this is the Italy of the 50s and the 60s, of Federico Fellini, Marcello Mastroianni, and the Agnelli, uh, and the industrial powerhouse that Italy was. If leaving the EU would mean this, then it would be attractive, but would it really mean this? Or would Italy, in fact, become a marginal country under Chinese or, or Russian influence? That's a choice that Europeans have to make, but I expect that it won't be an easy choice because we are captured by these very vague images of both the future and the past, and it's difficult for publics and the electorates to, to make sense of this. The only thing we know is that the present is not really working. So the world is changing. Europe is becoming weaker or less influential compared to how it was historically. Let's open this up to other places around the world, to America uh, and to the West more generally. Do you think that the liberal world order has ended? I think the answer has probably has to be yes. Uh, it's not that liberalism has disappeared, but that its global appeal is much reduced and you now have powerful alternatives and you have to live with them. I think the change, it's a powerful psychological change over not more than a decade or 15 years, is that 15 years ago we still believed that Russia and China would eventually converge to our model. It might take a while, it, there might be some trepidation in the process, but it would happen inevitably. And I think most reasonable people right now no longer believe this. Uh, I no longer believe it. Uh, I think that we're entering a world of global integration, but under many different models, and they will be battling each other. And there will be rivals, not only Russia but uh, and China, but also India. India is not going to embrace a Western-style form of liberal democracy. They have their own vision of the future. We have to become comfortable with a world that is divided between all these different visions. And if that's the case, then a liberal world order, where the world is the same everywhere, is probably an illusion. That affects everything. Uh, affects, for example, the way businesses work, that businesses uh, increasingly have to deal with all these different political regimes and political cultures and have to accept that that's the case. And I, you know, in my job as a consultant, I see many businesses that are being profoundly hurt, in some cases destroyed, because they go abroad and they think they can do businesses in, business in China, Russia, India, in the same way that they work in Europe or the United States. So it's a practical lesson for all of us to understand that the world is now going to be profoundly divided between, you could call it, different civilizations, different visions. We are part of the same world, not retreating within borders, uh, but it's this combination of different worlds under a globally integrated economy and, and media space and cultural space. You didn't mention America in that answer about the liberal order dying. Do you think America understands that the world, the kind of liberal world order has ended? I think so, because, you know, the incredible thing is the contrast between American domestic politics and its approach to foreign policy. 
So within American politics, you now have a completely chaotic environment where many rather extreme proposals are on the table, on the left and on the right, wokeness or Trumpism, a profoundly chaotic and conflictual environment where the, the liberal centrist consensus has completely collapsed. No one can even point to a figure that represents that. Perhaps Biden is the last of them, uh, but even Biden has been captured by many forces on the left. This is the picture inside the U.S., but then in its foreign policy, when it's trying to project a policy abroad, it still uses the old liberal consensus, very strong. You get this contrast very vividly, for example, in a figure like Mike Pompeo. When he was abroad, you would still use the old uh, truisms, the role of the media in a free society. Then he would go back home and call all journalists liars, uh, corrupt, and enemies of the American Republic. This contrast was in, in some ways comical, but also troubling. And I think what is happening slowly but surely is that America is also abandoning its strong liberal consensus in its foreign policy, as it has to. Its foreign policy will end up following its domestic policy. Because if no one believes in that consensus when at home, how can you still project it abroad? And we see some signs of this already. We saw how Donald Trump was no longer using the same evangelical language about promotion of democracy. He would sometimes have some nice words about dictators here and there. Uh, and we see how Biden was extremely comfortable negotiating and talking with the Taliban. And at some point, some uh, American officials were even presenting the Taliban as uh, partners that we work with on security issues. This is a new America. It's an America that is much more comfortable with these forces of uh, cultural and political uh, diversity, conflict, different extremes. And uh, what we're seeing, in my opinion, is that uh, American foreign policy is now much more about the balance of power, much more about limiting Chinese power, much more about reaching a certain global balance of power where no country is too dominant than the old project of actually exporting a Western-style model worldwide. And Afghanistan also represents that. If you can't export it to Afghanistan, do you really think you're going to be successful exporting it to China? And no one really believes this anymore. So America still has a vital role, but is a role as a balance, a role making sure that no one becomes too dominant in certain geographies. And it would be a good thing if America embraced this role, rather than the neoconservative obsession of making the whole world look like California. Because the truth is, not even the United States looks like California, and, and, and not even California looks like California anymore. That's the reality. What is the metaverse? We can perhaps think about how the pandemic forced us to retreat into a virtual world. Uh, and for many people, that was the beginning of a new age, where we're all going to migrate to the virtual world. Zuckerberg puts it in these terms. It's a new internet. It's different from the internet. It's not a new version of the internet. It's something entirely new, something that will replace the internet as a whole. And the fundamental difference is that in the internet, we look at a screen. In the metaverse, we are inside this virtual world. We can shop, we can meet friends. Another critical difference is in the internet, probably because it was never meant to take over our lives completely, 
we can stop, we go uh, into our lives in the physical world, and then we, when we reconnect to the internet, we reconnect again. The metaverse is supposed to be permanent and continuous. If you are inside a virtual shopping mall in the metaverse, not a page like Amazon, but a, a shopping mall with virtual walls and shops, and people can rent those shops, perhaps they will have to pay Facebook for it, then your avatar will be left there in some place in the mall. If you go have a meal in the physical world, when you return, the avatar is in the same place. It becomes a second parallel life. And the idea that Facebook and many other people believe in, I believe in it as well, is that increasingly our economies, large parts of them, will migrate here. It will be much more important for you to have a shop in the metaverse that all the world can go to and where you can try clothes on virtually. You can actually see how they look on you. You can walk with them. You can perhaps even feel the fabric in your hands through aptic gloves. It will be much more important to have a shop there than to have a shop on uh, Piccadilly or Oxford Street. Uh, so I think we're entering an age where increasingly this virtual world will take over large parts of our life. Now, you have said on Twitter that Joe Biden lives in his own metaverse. Can you explain that? Right, because let, let's think about it this way. This virtual world, in a way, what Facebook is now raising is the question of who will control it. But this virtual world in many respects already exists. Twitter is a metaverse in itself. We have our disputes, we have our fights, we uh, have some kind of persecutions against heretics of different kinds, there are punishments, there are rewards, and our political lives increasingly take place there. So it is a kind of metaverse already. And I think we see that culturally as well. Some of these uh, radical ideas on the left are a kind of metaverse. They create an artificial world where you have your own identity, your own avatar. You can create your sexual persona, your own avatar. There are complex rules, like in a video game, and you can lose and be cancelled, or you can succeed and become an important influencer. Biden's foreign policy also has some characteristics of a, of a metaverse. The idea that you projected in Afghanistan that the United States had won the war and had failed the task of uh, nation building. What was happening in reality on the ground, as I saw in my visit, was the United States had lost the war against the Taliban militarily, and he had never tried to any project of nation building in Afghanistan. But, he, you know, with our technology, with our culture, in 2021, it is quite possible and quite attractive to build these artificial virtual worlds. And try to convince others to jump in and to join us in that virtual world. But everyone is doing this. So the metaverses are multiplying. Perhaps there won't be a single metaverse, but many different metaverses controlled by different companies or different states. And you can visit or leave. And in some cases, you may even regard it as the real world and live there more or less permanently. But the age of virtual reality is now upon us. And it turns out that it's much more present than just in the experience that you have using some goggles. It's present everywhere you look. How does China fit into the metaverse? China's just issued a document by one of the main think tanks closely associated with the Chinese Communist Party, regarding it more or less as another American plot to take over the world. They're suspicious to see Facebook involved so closely in it. They think correctly, in my view, uh, I've already said that before, that the metaverse will replace the internet and in many respects also in the process replace large segments of our real world economy 
with these uh, virtual spaces uh, that uh, commerce will take place in the metaverse fundamentally and it will be regarded as uh, an archaic a practice to sell a car in the real world when you can go to the metaverse, try the car on ride on the streets and then buy it and then buy it and it's delivered in the physical world. Although you can also, let me say that, buy a virtual car in the in the metaverse and some people are going to live so much in the metaverse that they will want to buy a very expensive virtual car to drive there. That would be a question of status as well. And those products will cost nothing to manufacture and they might be sold by by good money. China regards this as fundamentally a threat in many respects, that there will be a reshuffling of the global economy and some companies will become even more dominant, others will lose out. China is interested that some of its companies that have the technology, like Tension, can be part of the process. China is also worried, and I also think correctly, that many of these technologies will be very clearly dual-use. Many of the things we're talking about will be very relevant for the military. 3D imaging, artificial intelligence, brain-computer interface, virtual reality uh, as such uh, will be important, uh, robotics of different kinds. So it's easy to understand why Chinese authorities would regard this both as a technological slash military threat and as an economic threat. What I wonder, however, is Chinese have been quite reluctant to embrace this idea that we should move into the virtual world. They just banned video games uh, used for more than three hours a day. So their metaverse is going to be different from America's metaverse. They will have a different vision for it, much more rooted in the physical world, probably much more economical, less focused on entertainment. There won't be virtual sex in the Chinese metaverse for everyone, and there might be in the American uh, Facebook-led one. So again, go back to the idea that there will be different metaverses rivaling each other. But finally, what Chinese authorities think and what this paper, very interesting paper, concludes is that the Internet was, was a big battle and the United States won. China was able to limit the damage using the firewall uh, and a defensive approach. But Chinese authorities are really resolute, decided not to be purely defensive this time, but to be part of the project uh, as it launches and create a viable rival to the American-led metaverse. Uh, it's one of those areas where it might become uh, America-China competition. On that interesting note, thank you so much, Bruno, for joining us. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.